Good morning. It's great to be with you today. We are now in week seven of our series in the book of Genesis, yeah? So it's the first book of the Bible. If you want to turn there, you can turn with us. We are, we're situating ourselves in our origin story, the story that we're given as Christians, so that we know how to live today, not so, so that we uh, get smarter, but so that we live uh, more faithfully. And we're learning uh, who we are and who God is um, based on how our story begins. And we've been um, proclaiming various pieces of good news throughout this origin story about creation, God arranging and bringing life out of the void, light out of darkness, order out of chaos. We've been talking about who we are, male and female. We've been talking about how we can uh, bring really good questions to Genesis and get really good answers. But we can also, and, and maybe we've been guilty of this, kind of bringing really bad questions to Genesis and kind of getting unhelpful answers as a result of that. Uh, we're diving deep on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock on Zoom. Come join us, ask some questions. It's been a really great uh, learning environment. I've really enjoyed the questions that people bring and the insight that they've brought. It's been um, really great. I've, I've really had fun. Today, we're getting to the end of the Eden story in what typically gets called the curse. The curse. Dun, dun, dun. So let's read it, and then we'll talk about some good news. Genesis 3, verses 14 to 24. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, the first time she's ever been called by name, because, that's, sorry, that's my little addition, uh, because she would become the mother of all living, all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I think we, um, as, this, as is the case with a lot of different stories, particularly Old Testament stories, we bring a lot of assumptions to uh, the text. And... Um, some of those assumptions, in terms of the, the way that we've understood and received this story, goes something like this. 
essentially that God, what He's doing here is saying to Adam and Eve, okay, you broke this one rule, uh, this one tree with this one fruit, with this one command, and I told you not to do it, and now, because you've done this one thing, you are under a curse. This moment of indiscretion, and you are cursed forever. Women are to blame, so they're going to have child pain, or labor pains. And men to get to be in charge, but they'll like have midlife crises because they have jobs. <laughs> this is just the way things are going to go. Oh, and by the way, you're 86 from the garden. So get out. You're banished. One indiscretion, and now humanity is screwed forever. Uh, let's respond. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We may not say that we believe it this way, but this is, this is rattling around in the back of our minds, is it not? This story, I think, reveals a deep misunderstanding we have about who God is that's pervasive. It's pervasive. One of the best examples of this type of God actually comes out of Disney's version of Beauty and the Beast. How many of fans? Huge fans? All right, live action or animated? Animated, all right. Yeah, everybody's kind of agreed on that. If you don't know the story of the Beauty and the Beast, I'm going to ruin it for you. You had your chance. So uh, <laughs> it was a story that, that originated actually 18th century France, but Disney changed a lot. Um, this is what happens when the mouse gets his gloves on stories. They tend to change things. But in the Disney version, there's this enchantress, this sorceress, who's looking for a place to stay in the middle of the storm. And she comes to this castle where a prince is having a party. And she has a rose in her hands, and she offers the rose to the prince as a gift if he lets her wait out the storm in his home. Now, you probably know what happens. The prince laughs at her and says no. He shuts the door in her face. He turns her away. And we see that he has this moment of indiscretion. And the repercussions of that act is that the enchantress puts a curse on him and his castle. Right? The prince is turned to what? A beast? All the servants of the household are turned into what? Teacups and, and furniture and, and the like. And they, they sing incredible songs to choreograph dancing. It's amazing. I don't, I don't see a curse. No, I'm just kidding. And then the rose, it was going to be a gift. It becomes a symbol of their cursedness. And the story goes this way, that the rose is slowly dying. Right? It's like an hourglass. And when the last petal drops, they're all going to be cursed forever. And the only way to prevent that from happening, to undo the curse, is, to, is for the beast to find true love. Right? Not only love someone else, but having them love him in return. We, we know this story, right? This is an archetypal story. It tells us about how we see the universe, how we see God, how we see justice, how we see reality. And we maybe unknowingly, inherit misconceptions that none of us would outright sort of identify as true. We wouldn't put these as answers on a theology exam, but they live in our bones and they tell us who God is. That God is, in, in a sense, out to curse us if we break his laws. That he's some kind of tit-for-tat justice machine. And that if you violate God's holy command, his justice demands punishment. And that essentially this is what Adam and Eve receive a form of just retribution and punishment because they've offended God's holiness. 
But I want to suggest and um, maybe even contend that this is an unhelpful way to see what's happening in Genesis 3 and the God that we see here. Today, actually, in our text, we see a God who is so committed to his creation project and to his people, his image bearers, that, that he will not, even though he will not violate their freedom to, to, for the sake of his love, he accommodates himself to their freedom and continues to love and to be committed to them. So today we proclaim the good news that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've come, no matter how much you've lost, God has not given up on you. He covers your shame, meeting you where you're at. He limits the damage that you can afflict, and he binds evil's authority over you. And ultimately, he brings you back to the tree of life, the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. I want to clear up a couple things about this text right out of the gate, okay? We call it the curse, and so we immediately think that God is punishing Adam and Eve, and that's not what's happening. Let's look at the text. So there are two clear curses given in Genesis 3. Two very clear curses that are given. What gets cursed in Genesis 3? The serpent and the soil are the only two things that get cursed in Genesis 3. What, so what does that leave out? Adam and Eve. Nowhere in Genesis 3 are Adam and Eve cursed. They are not cursed. And neither are we as subsequent human beings. We have to be incredibly clear about how we talk about this because we conflate two, and it leads us to some really unfortunate ways of viewing ourselves and the world. The serpent and the soil are cursed. Adam and Eve are not. That's the first thing. Second is this, that what Adam and Eve do actually receive are the consequences of their choices, not punishment. And we have to be clear about that too. They receive consequences, not punishments. Notice that all of the repercussions of the choice that they make are actually, we're going to talk about each of these, they're natural outworkings of their choice. They're the natural consequences that evolve from their indiscretion, meaning that each of them are a description of how life now works because they've chosen it, not prescriptions that God is doling out at them. And that makes all the difference in the world. So um, notice what God names as the consequences, some of these consequences. For the woman, God names that everything that God had given to her in creation as a gift is now frustrated and compromised. So verse 16 says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You remember in uh, chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we saw that in creation, Adam and Eve were created as one flesh. This points to, remember I said this last week, our need for belonging. When Adam looks at his wife, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, they're naked and unashamed. This is a picture of mutuality and equality, of giving and receiving in relationship. But now we see that instead of belonging, there's a rivalry, a factioning of desires, a domination of one over the other. He will rule over you now. 
and that this is going to create rivalry between them. We're actually going to see this rivalry amplified as we go on. Chapter 3, it's between husband and wife. Chapter 4, it's between brothers. Chapter 6, it's everyone. It gets amplified through every single relationship. They go from sharing power to striving for power and using it over and against each other. So that, that's belonging. Remember we talked about our need for significance last week. That we were created as image bearers to have dominion, to have influence over creation. And two of the main ways that women exercise dominion in this context of the ancient Near East it was as a wife and a mother. Those were areas of dominion for women in that culture. So now we see the description of what happens when trust is placed in something other than God for what God gives freely in his creation. The women now have, they experience frustration in what they've been given authority over, pain in childbearing and pain in being wife. And then the third one that we talked about was our need for security. The belonging, significance, security. That now also God's provision in providing for us for this need that we have to be safe and secure, well, that's going to be frustrated too. We see this in the man and his vocation, that the soil is cursed now, meaning that, that his work will be thwarted all the days of his life. So think about this, not in, in terms of God prescribing curses like the enchantress from Beauty and the Beast. God is not putting a hex on his people but that God had already decided in his creation that the way things would work is that he would share with his created beings his presence, his power, and his provision. That they would be beings who would experience belonging, significance, and security in relationship to God. That God had decided that that was a better way of being God than withholding all of those things from us. And he's so committed to this project where we get to play a role in creation that when we say no, God allows for it to happen. He gives us so much true freedom that our no actually means no. Because we're not robots and we're not minions. We're made in his image. If God wanted robots, he would have made robots, but he didn't. He made us. And so what God's doing in Genesis 3 is he's describing what our no looks like, what it means, what results of it, what fruit is going to come from the fruit that we've eaten, that we've chosen of our own free will. But notice, even in the midst of our no, God doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. So we proclaim the good news today that no matter what we've done or how far we've gone, God is not done with us. He's not done with you. He is ruthlessly committed to you. He covers your shame. He limits the damage that you can inflict based upon the bad choices you've made and, and even limits what evil can do to you and through you. He provides a way back to himself through the new tree of life, the cross of his son. So the woman, um, she experiences frustration and pain, right? These, this is the description of the consequences that she inherits. Man, this is, it's, it's like painfully beautiful. Uh, Hebrew poetry is rife with um, irony. One of the, 
it's one of the main form, like it's one of the ways that Hebrew writers love to uh, talk about truth is that they'll like fuse it with irony. And and here's the irony here. In reaching for the tree of life, what is it that we were hoping to gain? Or not the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We we're trying to gain knowledge. Where does knowledge reside in the body? In our heads. <clears throat> what happens to our heads when we gain, like metaphorically speaking, when we gain, someone who, has, who thinks a lot of themselves and has a lot of thoughts about life, what do we call them? They have a big head. <laughs> Eve's consequence is that childbearing is going to be more painful. Why is childbearing so painful for human beings? Jen knows. Humans have the, one of the largest heads at birth of any animal on the planet. You get the irony? In reaching for the tree of the knowledge, it makes our brains large, which makes childbirth more difficult for humans more than almost any other animal. Do you see the... That's Hebrew irony for you. That's just a side. I just thought it was interesting. The word pain, though, it doesn't, it doesn't just have to do with giving birth to babies. It, there's also, in this word, there's an imbued or, or an implied uh, emotional pain as well. The childbearing is more than just giving birth. It's about being a mother. And we see here that there's going to be pain in raising our children apart from the presence of God. Now, one of the problems with seeing this um, consequence as a prescriptive punishment is that we do all kinds of crazy things as a result of, of viewing the text this way. You want an example? How about in the 19th century, uh, when they began to use anesthesia in surgeries for the first time, there's a huge medical advancement, right? Can't believe it. You know, like, you don't have to, like, bite down on a block of wood in order to amputate someone's arm. This is incredible, right? But when they introduced this amazing technology to help mothers during labor and delivery, there was one group of people that vehemently opposed it, that protested and called down the judgment of God. Can you take a guess as to who this group might be? It was male clergy. They pointed to this verse and they said, if God wanted women not to have pain in childbearing, He wouldn't have cursed them. So if you take anesthesia to give birth to a child, you are violating God's will. It's been done. It's been done. I hope I'm not the first person to tell you this, but God does not want us to experience curses. This is a description, not a prescription. God does not want you to walk through life cursed. Men or women. But fortunately, for far too long, we have looked at these verses, verses like the childbearing one, and like the, the men ruling over women one, and we've used these verses to prescriptively justify hierarchy and oppression. Here's the thing. As image bearers of God, we do not take these curses as just being the way the world works, so get on board. We don't. We work against the things that are cursed. 
the curses that hold creation in bondage. We don't, we don't excuse them and we don't allow for them. Like nobody looks at their lawn full of thorns and thistles and weeds and says to themselves or their neighbor, let them grow because this is God's will for my lawn. I mean, maybe there are, yeah, James will think of some people that have done that. Of course he will. No, like, you get out the, the Scott weed killer and you go at those bad boys. You subdue them. And you pluck them. And you cultivate your grass. And, and you work so that it, it's, uh, it, it's fertile if you're, if you're planning to grow something there. You don't take it as a given that the ground is cursed, therefore let's just throw our hands up and live according to this new rule system. We don't do that when it comes to vegetation in creation. Yeah? We also no longer in the 21st century do that with, with pain and childbearing. If a, if a doctor says to a woman, you cannot have anesthesia because of the will of God, you have violated your Hippocratic Oath, right? You have inflicted pain on an image bearer rather than work towards their comfort and their health and their vitality as a physician. We don't take the curse as being normative and prescriptive. We take it as something to do battle against. Why in the world, then, would we take a verse about males dominating females and prescribe that? It's part of the curse. Folks, I, I'm just coming to a realization of these things recently in my life and realizing how I've made distinctions between the first two curses and the last one. We work against the curses. We don't take them as grant, for granted. We don't excuse, excuse them or make allowances for them. We subvert and undo them with all the power that we are given in heaven. Today we proclaim that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've lost, God has not given up on you. He doesn't just zap you with judgment, but He accommodates your condition. He condescends to where you're at. He covers your shame. He limits the damage that you can do based upon your choices. He honors your freedom, but he gives you access to the tree of life through Jesus. So we've talked about the women. What about the men? God says that uh, the sin of the man was in eating, and so now his consequences have to do with food and eating. There's a connection here. Right? Because you ate the food, now all the things that you do to get food will be frustrated. Do you see that connection? He doesn't say to him, you went and ate the fruit and now you're going to get leprosy. Like that would be a prescriptive judgment. What Adam receives is a descriptive consequence. For Adam, like Eve, the consequences are tied to the transgression. So another, um, here's another Hebrew irony that we miss in English. Remember I said that Adam's name means what? It's, it's, it's Adam, which means human, who's taken from the Adamah, which means what? Ground, right? He's, he's the, the, the human from the soil. 
the Adam from the Adama. And now the Adama is cursed because of the Adam. And part of the consequences is that the Adam will return to the Adama. You see this? The circle of life. No, no. <laughs> the consequence here is that God is with he, God is withdrawing his presence, his provision, and his power because Adam and Eve have said, this is their decision, they have said, we don't need those things. This is so critical. So critical. Because what God does in Genesis 3 is he honors their decision. He respects his humans enough to say, I will go along with what you decide. He gives them over to their choice. He doesn't try to talk them out of it. And and the amazing thing is that it continues to get worse. And God continues to pursue and to give freedom and opportunity to His people even though it just keeps getting worse. (laughs) Like we're going to read it. Genesis 4, 5, 6. Cain kills Abel. We'll talk about that next week. Lamech brags about how bad he is. And by Genesis 6, God is grieved that he made people because violence is everywhere. And we'll talk about this when we get there, but the flood is not God zapping the world with water. It's God withdrawing his presence because humans have chosen so. And the, the presence that hovered over the waters in chapter 1, holding back the chaos... Now, by Genesis 6, God withdraws his presence and and once again, those same chaotic waters engulf the world. Divine judgment in Scripture is often, often divine withdrawal. It's God saying, okay, you've asked me to get out and I will give you the space that you desire. Not because you've done this and failed the test, now you're cursed forever until I can come up with a better plan to save you. That's the God of the beauty and the beast. That is not the God of the Bible. And then, um, this is a bit of an aside, but I think, I think it might be helpful too. The, the serpent gets cursed, right? We talked about this. The, the Hebrew for uh, that word serpent is nakash. Um, and there's a lot of mystery about the identity of this individual, but a lot of um, really great Hebrew scholars uh, consider that this is sort of a member of God's divine counsel, that, um, that the Hebrew understanding of how God reigned in the world was that he had, um, in, in a sense, like a kingly counsel, just like every nation would have. And part of that counsel included human beings, but it also included angelic or divine beings. And that uh, the serpent, this nakash, who can mean serpent, it can also mean like shining one, was a member of this divine council. Now, that, that's a, a bit of background, but it, it gives you this idea that the, the serpent isn't um, only a, like a slithering animal, but it's this I- I- enormous like created being that has incredible um, majesty and power and influence. And it, it uses that power and influence to deceive God's created beings, the people that God loves. And, um, and again, here's another Hebrew irony. Because the angelic being, what is, in a sense, the angelic being 
uh, strikes out at the Adam, right? Who is taken from the Adamah. And what's the curse of this Nakash now? He has to eat Adamah for the rest of his life. That's the, like, again, it's so poetically beautiful that God's curse of this being is to bring him down from his ability to deceive into the dust, and his mouth will be so full of the Adamah that he won't be able to strike at the Adam anymore. This is God binding the authority of evil. It is him putting a limitation on what evil is allowed to do from now on. Isn't that incredible? Out of his care and his love for humans. And it keeps going. I mean, at the end of the story, Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, yeah? But it's not that, that God's just saying, you've broken this one rule and now here's the sentence. Notice what God does. He condescends and he accommodates to where they're at. They're full of shame and they cover themselves. And God doesn't condemn them for their condition. He doesn't try to talk them out of it either. He, he comes to them and he, and he makes them better, more permanent covering. It's as if God's saying, if you're, if you're going to be living with shame from here on out, then I'm going to accommodate that condition. And I'll be with you even as you experience shame. Do you see the beauty in this? God is giving, giving, giving of himself. And then last, it says that God says that they're going to be removed from the Garden of Eden. But what's the, what's the reason that God gives for their removal? Did you see it? So they won't eat from the tree of life. I have to remove them from this place so that they don't eat from the tree of life. This is not Adam and Eve getting kicked out because they broke a rule. This is God trying to limit the damage of their choice. You see, if, if they're compromised in their relationship with God and with each other, and their eternal destiny is to go on in that state forever as immortal beings, that is eternal separation. God is literally saving His image bearers from hell here. You see it. He's saying, I don't want you to have to experience the consequence of your choice forever. That would be awful. Them losing Eden isn't punishment. It's provision. It's protection. Do you see how different this God is from the one that we've often heard or internalized? Today, friends, we proclaim a better news that God comes to us no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've gone, no matter how much we've lost. He's not given up on you. He comes to you right where you are. He accommodates himself to you. Even in your worst choices, he's still available to you, covering your shame, limiting the consequences of those choices, putting in place protective measures that you may never realize. And he gives you access to his son who shows us the new tree of life, his cross. This is what it means that um, Jesus is our son. He becomes the new Adam, the true Adam who battles all the temptations that Adam and Eve experienced to trust someone or something else for significance, belonging, security. And he's victorious there. And he goes to a tree 
to a tree. And he bears the curse that we, archetypally, in Adam and Eve, are all complicit of because we're part of the human race. He bears that curse and he ends it. And now Paul says in Romans 8, like, the rest of creation is waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Like, the rest of creation is waiting for God's kids to, to get on board with God's restoration plan. And so, so faith in Jesus means that we're not just saved from eternal damnation. Like we are. Praise God. Yes and amen. But we're saved to something. We're saved for a, a, a purpose. We get caught up and caught into our original creation vocation again. That the curse isn't the way things have to be. Yes, it's a description of the way things are right now, but we don't resign ourselves to it because it's not the way things always will be. The way things are is the way things are until the revelation of the children of God. So as we come into our identity in Christ together, as we trust Jesus, as we surrender our lives to him, as we reclaim our identity as God's authorized agents to have dominion in the world, the world starts to get set right again. This gets me excited. You might tell. The good news is no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've lost, God's not done with you. He's ready to meet you where you are, cover your shame, bind the authority of evil that's been over your life, and to partner with you in what God are you living with? Is it a God who looks more like the retributive enchantress from the Beauty and the Beast? Who is waiting for you to mess up or withholding blessing from you because of something that you've done or not done? Do you wonder if like the bad things in your life are because of something that you've done or not done? You live with a God who operates according to karma rather than a God who operates according to covenant love. We want to respond to the God of reality today because that's the God in Genesis who responds and accommodates and comes to us in reality and who gives us access to the tree of life. Think about this as we respond. Is Where do you experience the consequences and repercussions of the curse? Where do you feel alienated from other people or from creation or even from God? Where do you feel frustration, anxiety, pain, longing, anger, hurt, betrayal, abandonment? Our response as Christians is to not turn away from those things or to um, just feel really bad about them as payment to God. But it's to name them and offer them up and ask God for a truer, better picture of what he's like. So, uh, I want to give a space to do that and we're going to pray and then we'll respond more.